My name's RG. I'm one of the pastors on staff here at the church. And uh, if you have been here last month and a half, I have kind of been in and out. And so it's great to be back with you. Uh, my wife and I took um, our thought, thought it would be a good idea at the time when I booked the tickets uh, last, a long time ago, to take our six month old twin daughters with us to the greatest country in the world, Texas. And so we went. We went there and hoping, you know, just praying and hoping it would be, it would go well. And uh, for, I got a cheap uh, plane ticket. Uh, apparently, there are not many direct flights from Milwaukee to Austin. So we had to go from, for some reason, from Milwaukee to Denver, Colorado, which I think is like west, and then down to Austin, and both flights for about two and a half hours. But I'm praying, I'm praying, I'm hoping that things might go well. And so right as they seal the door, you know, of the plane, they're basically, there's no escape. There's no escape. Right when that happens, the girls just, they just go ballistic, right? And it's, I'm, it's just so loud. And every single judgmental thought I'd ever had towards parents in my life, just, it totally like went out the window. And I thought how, you know, and people are looking at us and I'm like, you don't even know. And <laughs> You know, you probably had one. So it's just like all these just not helpful thoughts. And so, of course, Camille, who I had, you know, she just has to, she has a poopy diaper. And so I have to go change her in the uh, bathroom, which I'm fairly certain are getting smaller and smaller and smaller. No average person can actually even fit in this bathroom, much like for the child. And so I put her like on the changing table, which is about like, I feel like half the size of this podium right here. And so the plane's doing like this motion. And so I'm like holding her with my left hand, trying to grab a diaper, like hitting up against the side. And I'm like, are you kidding me? And she's crying. And so I bring her out and the stewardess and stewardesses are out there. And they're like, are you okay? And I'm just like, I'm fine. And, you know, what is the deal? And so I sit back down and, you know, she just kind of calms down. And then Maisie starts crying because she was crying. And so we finally you know, get to Denver, and I'm like, we're never getting on a plane again. We're staying, like, we are starting Door Creek Church Denver campus, because I, I am never getting on a plane again. We're never going to Texas. People will come visit us. I cannot do another two-and-a-half-hour plane ride, and so I'm sure the people walk, watching us as we walk to the airport just thought we were the walking dead, because our faces were probably just like, what, what, what is this? And we decided to get on the plane and go to the great nation, and uh, they slept that whole flight which makes sense because they were like crazy on the first flight. And I was like, this was okay, actually. And uh, so that was nice. And so we made it and had a great, um, we had a great time. And then uh, a few days later, I went to uh, Spain, um, not with the twins, okay, with uh, teenagers, equally exciting. And we had a, um, a great time visiting uh, missionaries that we support, um, Corey um, and Laura Eller, who work in Spain. And uh, Spain may not jump out at you as a country, right, where missionaries work or, or missionaries uh, go, but actually in the country of Spain, it is 0.5%, 0.5% evangelical gospel Christian. Okay, there are really basically very, very few churches that are there which are thriving and growing and, and preaching the gospel and making disciples. And the others are part of some churches in southern Spain, and so we went to encourage them and do an English camp and all those type of things and help them. And, and it was just an awesome, awesome, awesome trip. And in that trip, uh, I got to baptize six high school students in the Mediterranean, which is cool. So if you write a picture of, uh, of that. So that's them. You can do a hand. Come on. Don't be afraid. There you go. That's good. 
so the sun, the sun was setting on the Mediterranean, and, and I know, not so bad. And uh, we got to do play some songs on the beach, and this massive public beach, all these people are there. And so as we kind of had them on the sand before we went on the water, all the Spanish people and other you know, international people who are visiting the south of Spain kind of come up to our group to kind of hear what's going on. Like what they probably had maybe never seen a baptism in their life. Like, what are we doing? And we're singing in Spanish and in English, and it was awesome. And so I was just sharing the gospel, and then we took them into the water and baptized them, and it was just, it was awesome. So I told them, you know, nothing against, you know, Goodman Pool, but the Mediterranean is in the Bible. So it's just, like, better, you know? So, yeah. So it was good. It was good. So now I'm here preaching, and with that, get out your Bible. We'll be in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 13. Chapter 13 of Matthew's Gospel, if you have it in front of you, if you have it on a phone, a tablet, if you haven't memorized any of those things, good to go. This is the last uh, message in our series on the parables, uh, and I've titled this message just kind of the parables title, but I've changed it a little bit. So this is the parable of the sower in every Bible, but I've called it the parable of the hearers. Because actually it's not about the sower, it's about the hearers. So don't be alarmed. The, the, like the titles of the chapters are not original to the Bible. Okay, They're just there to help you. So I'm not like changing the Bible. Okay, I'm just saying that it's not really about the sower. It's about the people who hear what Jesus is saying. So it's the parable of the hearers. And what's going to happen here is Jesus is going to talk about four different responses to him, to the message, and to the gospel. And I'm going to kind of paint with a broad brush uh, a little bit. I know I am. And, uh, but I think that will help with some clarity on who these people are and how we can identify maybe who you are in the audience and uh, what the Christian is in the audience. I think that might be helpful. So Matthew chapter 13 is going to be about a response to the preaching of the gospel. So I'm not sure what kind of response you get if you tell people, if you are a Christian, if you tell people you're a Christian or it comes up or what kind of response you get if you share the gospel with someone, but especially in Western right context in, in Europe and the United States, it can be a little dicey, especially in Madison. If you kind of say, Hey, I'm a Christian and, and this is what I believe, or I'm sharing the gospel with you as a pastor, I don't even have to like share the gospel. I just kind of say, flag myself as a pastor. If it comes up in conversation and the responses are just they're just crazy. I mean, you never know what somebody's going to say about uh, that when they f- hear your pastor, you know, the response you might get. So uh, the neighbors of my wife and I, uh, where we live, are a great uh, couple um, who are young, and um, they have dogs, and they raise chickens, and they give us eggs, you know, it's just classic Madison couple, okay? And they're just, they're awesome, right? And they're good friends of ours, and not, you know, not Christians, I uh, know, you know, that, that we are, and early on in our, you know, friendship <clears throat> relationship, we were out, uh, my wife and I were out to eat at Tex Tubbs, which is not bad Mexican, you know, by Wisconsin standards, if you're looking for a good Mexican place, all right? That was for free. You're welcome. Okay. <laughs> and we're out there, and we run into them, and we see them, and we're like, hey, you know, it's always weird when you see somebody, like, outside of their normal environment, and I was like, hey, guys, what, what's going on? And so, one of our first conversations, and so we finally get around to what they do, and then I know eventually they're going to ask me what I do, and so I'm like, okay, do I say I'm a pastor? I know I don't want to lie, but like it just gets awkward. I don't want to get awkward right now, and so I'm like, okay, I just tell them that I'm a pastor, and Pat, the guy, you know, just really pretty excitable. He, I say that, and he looks at me, and he's like, really? <laughs> like, you are a pastor? Like, 
I did not expect that from you. you know. And then he goes, he goes, I did not expect that from anyone, actually. Well, it's like, anyone, really? Like, like, we do exist in real life. There are pastors out there. Like, we're not unicorns. Just because I, you know, there's may not be a collar and a lot of gray hair, but I am a pastor, like, and I believe that. Uh, he was just like, and so the rest of our conversation, like, his face was just like, I can't. I can't, but what was he doing, right? He was bringing in a lot of history and baggage and presuppositions into what a pastor was, maybe what a Christian is, what church is. I didn't even share the gospel. I just said, I'm a pastor, right? And his response was just really demonstrative, but it said a lot about maybe what he thought about Christianity, about a thousand different things. Right? Jesus is someone who's very interested in a response to the gospel. He's not interested in you saying, God, what a nice guy. Let's go live my life. Right? He is not interested in that. And I am not interested in you leaving today thinking, oh, God, what a neat little sermon. I should just be a better person, right? You came to the wrong church <laughs> for that. Okay, Jesus is interested in a response that says either I'm signing up or I'm out of here. Right? And over and over again, the parables are used to elicit responses in people from their heart. And in this parable, Jesus is going to tell us about four different people and how they respond to his message. Okay. Verse 1 of chapter 13. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat by the lake. Such large crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat and sat in it, while all the people stood on the shore. Then he told them many things in parables, saying, A farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched, and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil, where it produced a crop, a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. Whoever has ears, let him hear. What does this mean? <laughs> well, good news for us, the disciples asked Jesus what it meant, and he explained the parable which makes my sermon a bit easier because I can just look at what Jesus says. But basically, again, I'm painting with a broad brush. I know there are other responses to the gospel that aren't covered here, but I want to cover four just this, this morning. So the four responses to the gospel kind of defined in a person are this, the skeptic, the deconverted, the pleasure seeker, and the Christian. Okay, these are the four people generally Jesus is talking about here. The skeptic, Deconverted, the pleasure seeker, and the Christian. I'll read verses 18 through 23, where Jesus explains what the parable is about. Listen then to what the parable of the sower means, verse 19. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in their heart. That's the skeptic. This is the seed sown along the path. The seed falling on a rocky ground refers to someone who hears the word at once, receives it with joy, but since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. That's the deconverted. The seed falling among the thorns refers to someone who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, making it unfruitful. That's the pleasure seeker. But the seed falling on good soil refers to someone who hears the word and understands it. This is the one who produces a crop yielding 160 or 30 times what was sown. And that's the Christian. Okay, let's work through these. And what I want to do is work through 
the hearers and then come back to the ones who are not Christians and talk about how as Christians we can engage with people who don't believe what we believe and how we can love and serve people as Christians, right, and make Christianity and make Jesus seem very attractive to them and trusting them that God will save if it's God's desire. Okay, so the first one, the skeptic, okay? This is verse 18. Listen to what the parable means. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. So this is a person alive in the time of Jesus, very much alive in our time, who has heard the message of the gospel. They've heard it, right? hopefully very clearly, the true gospel. And they said, I, I hear that, but I reject it because I don't think it's true, or I don't think it's trustworthy, or I don't believe it because this book is clearly made up and not factual, or you can't say there's only one way to God, or Christians believe this, and I could never believe that, right? You, either that is you this morning, or that is someone you know, right? Uh, or you're going to meet someone like that right, in your life because they're a growing group of people. And the skeptic is someone who's, they hear it, right? They know it. It's not that they haven't heard. They, they know it. They just say, no, I, I reject that. And Jesus says, there's going to be a group of people who exist who say, I hear it. I just reject it for X, Y, or Z reasons. It can be intellectual. It can be psychological. It can be emotional. It can be sociological. It can be all kinds of reasons why they reject it at this time. Right? When I was talking with an atheist friend of mine, um, and he was asking about my beliefs. He was a pastor. You just kind of get these, these questions like, you know, do you, do you really believe this? And so we're having this long conversation. And so he says, hey, do you, do you, are do you, I know you're a pastor. I know you're a Christian. Do you, do you really, really believe that, that if someone is born like in the bush in Africa, right, do you really think that God will damn them to hell just because they haven't prayed some prayer, Right. And so we had this long conversation about that. Then we had a long conversation about, can you actually trust the Bible, right? And so he's talking about, yeah, I grew up and I kind of heard the Bible was true, but isn't it just made up by lots of people to kind of keep this faith and power, right, intact, right? And so again, then we answer that, right? But here's someone who knows all about the Bible, actually knows a lot about the gospel and just says, for X, Y, or Z reason, I just, I can't believe it. I just can't believe it. That's someone who's very skeptical to the claims of Christianity, the presupposition there is that I can't trust Jesus or I can't trust the Bible. And so I'm going to pursue other types of religions. I'm going to pursue other types of philosophy. I'm going to live my life and create meaning for myself. And this is a very growing type of person in our culture. So that's response number one. Jesus says that's going to happen. Response number two is a deconverted. This is verse 20. The seed falling on a rocky ground refers to someone who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble, suffering, pain, darkness comes in, or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. Now, this is a very difficult one and hard one, and a very powerful one, because what, what Jesus is saying here is he's saying a couple things. He's saying there are going to be people who pray a prayer. There are going to be people, right, who at summer camp eventually just come down on the front, okay, and they're going to say, I'm signing up and they have no idea what they're signing up for. They're going to say, I'm a Christian. They're going to say this. They're going to say that. And they may even practice and go to church and check all these things off. But when suffering or pain or brokenness happens, they're going to abandon it because they don't have roots. Because what they built their faith on was something other than the gospel. And they're going to abandon it. Or if they say they're a Christian and they get made fun of or they get persecuted, right? They suffer because of the gospel. They're going to say, no, I'm out of here. 
I don't, I don't believe it. I'm going to fall away. And Jesus is going to say, this is going to happen to people. It may be something that happened to you, someone in your family, a friend of yours. Right? This is a very powerful one because it speaks to something that is very hard. We suffer. We have anger. We have pain towards God. And we think, I can't believe in a God who would do this. Right? Another person that I talked with actually when I was in Spain uh, towards the end of the trip, just a great conversation uh, with a woman who was Irish, which made the conversation much more awesome because the accent was great. And she found out my last name was McClanagan, so it gave me some street cred, you know, with her a little bit, <laughs> even though I was an American and a Protestant. But, okay, so we were, like, talking, and she said she grew up in the church, and she was a Christian, and she kind of, she just checked all these things off, and I was like, wow, you really were part of the church. You really did know the Bible, and, you know, she did all these things. I was like, okay, so she told me she's now, you know, an atheist and not believing anymore, and so I wanted to figure out, well, what, like, what happened? Like, how did you go from, it seems like, believing to then no longer believing and being just really opposed to God? And so just in God's providence, he kind of just really allowed her to share the story of really her sister, who was also a Christian, uh, who got diagnosed with cancer uh, probably four or five years ago now. And she was talking to me. She said, you know, my sister was a Christian. She was a good person. She went to church. She did all of these things. Okay. And she got cancer. And she prayed to God. She said, God, would you give me two years to live so I could raise my young boys? Would you give me two years to live? And she's telling me, she said, my sister prayed this prayer, and she's getting more emotional and more you know, angry as she's sharing this with me. She prayed this prayer. You know what God did? He took her. And she said, I was by her bedside the whole time as she died. And she's telling me this. She said, she said she had the most horrific death you can imagine. And I was by her bedside for 12 hours, right, as she coughed up basically everything inside of her and then died. And she said, I I will never believe in a God who did that to someone. I will never believe in a God who made my sister suffer in that way. I can never believe in a God who would treat one of his children like that. Right. Now, in the moment, she just started crying. She had to get up from the table and excuse herself. And it it was powerful. Right. And she looked at me when she came back. She looked at me. She said, she's like, do you really believe in a God who would ever do that to someone that he claims to love? Right? And in the moment of that, I did not go to this parable and say, your roots aren't deep enough. Right? I said, I don't know why God did what he did. I don't know why he did not save your sister. I know he was able. I don't know why he did what he did. And any person who ever tells you they know why God did this or God did that is a fool. Because God never says. Right? What I did say is that I know that God is good. What I didn't say, but what is true about this parable, is that she had a faith that was not deeply rooted enough to withstand suffering. And she had a faith implicitly built on the belief that if you're a Christian, if you're a good person, if you do this, if you do that, then you can somehow avoid suffering or pain because you're a Christian. And I think many of us in the room could say, well, that's clearly not true. Suffering comes to all of us. Pain comes to all of us. And the only way that we can walk through it is to know that we have a God who actually suffered with us and for us. It doesn't excuse, it doesn't say that, okay, I can just forget about what I suffered, but it does say that Christianity, different than every other religion, has roots that go so deep because we have a God who suffered for us, who knows what it's like. But Jesus says there will be people, there will be people that you meet, that you encounter, 
their roots were not deep enough and they fall away. And we need to have compassion towards them and love them and not judge them and say, oh, your roots weren't deep enough. No. Show them the roots you have. All right. That's the deconverted. Number three, the pleasure seeker. Verse 23. The seed falling among the thorns refers to someone who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, making it unfruitful. Okay, I call this one the pleasure seeker, and this one has always been prevalent, and it's very prevalent now, the pursuit of happiness outside of God. That, that the presupposition here is that the Bible is a rule book that is boring and is just ridiculous, and if you actually want to follow it, you'll never have pleasure and happiness and joy. And so we're going to find that in other people, in other things, And we're going to build our identity on something besides who God is. This is the person who is seeking pleasure, seeking fulfillment in something else besides what is eternal. And Jesus says there are going to be people who hear the word. They hear the preaching of the gospel. They they may contemplate. They may think about it. They may think, oh, that's kind of interesting. But then some other desire woos them and they say, this is more interesting. This has more of my heart whether it's a person, whether it's a promotion, whether it's money, whether it's how you look, whether it's how your house looks, right? All kinds of things that can move in our hearts to say, if I just can have this, I'll be okay. If I can just do this, then I'll feel like I'm worth something. And this is so prevalent in our culture because it's wired into our hearts. The book of Ecclesiastes says that our hearts are made for eternity. And yet we try and fill it with things which are not eternal and we just keep hitting ceilings. Because there's only one thing which is eternal, which can go in there and satisfy you. And anything else you plug in there is only going to disappoint you. Cynthia Heimel in uh, a magazine called The Village Voice, which is in New York City. It's kind of like the Isthmus of New York City. Kind of get the vibe of that if you read the Isthmus. And she wrote an article um, a while ago uh, where she talked about celebrities who became very, very famous who she knew before they were famous, right? They were busboys, they were waitresses. Uh, they were just nobodies trying to become famous. And she knew them before, right, they were famous. And she said over and over again, these people would just be like, once I become famous, once my movie makes this kind of money, then I'm going to be happy, right? Then I'm going to arrive. Then I'm going to achieve what I cannot achieve if I'm just a waitress or a busboy or just, you know, a taxi cab driver. I, I can't do that. And long after these actors and actresses, many of whom you would know, became famous, she wrote an article about actually how they did become. She writes this. She says, I think when God wants to play a really rotten practical joke on you, he grants your deepest wish. She says, I pity celebrities, and she names them, but I won't. She says, no, I do. Celebrities, these people were once perfectly pleasant human beings, but now their wrath is awful. More than any of us, they wanted fame. They worked, they pushed, and the morning after each of them became famous, they wanted to take an overdose. Because that giant thing they were striving for, that fame thing that was going to make everything okay, that was going to make their lives bearable, that was going to provide them with personal fulfillment and happiness, had happened. And nothing changed. They were still them. The disillusionment turned them howling and insufferable. Right? Because however you rearrange the life around you, when you wake up in the morning and look in the mirror, it's still you. 
And for many people, that can be very disappointing if your life is built on things that are all about promoting you. Right? Because everything else in your life besides your faith in Christ can be taken away from you and will be taken away from you. And if you build your life on that, then it's just, it's just so empty. It's just so exhausting to build your life on things which are temporary. But it's so easy because they're so alluring. Jesus says, the people who hear and yet they're deceived and think this other thing will actually make me happy. And don't think that Christians can also suffer from that too, right? We can wander as well. We can all go prodigal from time to time. And Jesus says, come home. Robbie Zacharias writes, he says, he says, the loneliest moment in life is when you have just experienced that which you thought would deliver the ultimate and it has just let you down. The loneliest moment in your life is when what you have just experienced, you thought that would deliver the ultimate and it has just let you down. Happiness is fleeting. It's chasing the wind. In the TV show, Mad Men, Don Draper has a great line where he talks about advertising and marketing, and he's, he's doing a pitch. And he's, the pitch he's doing to the company, he's encouraging them to never be satisfied with how much market share they have, Right? You always got to have more. You always got to press more. You can never be satisfied where you are. And he ends the pitch and he says, he says, what is happiness? Happiness is that moment before you need more happiness. Right? That's what happiness is. It's fleeting. It's gone. Right? You eat a great lunch, you get hungry. You have a lot to drink, you get thirsty. Over and over again, we have to refill. Jesus says there'll be people like that that you meet. Finally, the last person is this, verse 23. But the seed falling on good soil refers to someone who hears the word and understands it. This is the one who produces a crop yielding 160 or 30 times what was sown. This is the Christian. Right, this is the Christian. So we've had the skeptic, the deconverted, the one who suffers, uh, the pleasure seeker. Now Jesus says, here is the Christian. Here's the response to the gospel on the good soil. And what makes the soil good? Right? Who are these people who Jesus says are going to produce the crop, are going to produce the fruit? Okay? They're not the A-team. Okay? They're not the people that God's been growing in some special place over there who are really moral and really put together. Right? What makes the soil good? It's grace. Right? Grace makes the soil good. Grace makes us good. Grace makes us people who can receive the word. And look what Jesus says. He says, the seed falling on good soil refers to someone who hears the word and understands it. Every other person has heard the word. Every other person has heard the preaching of the word, has heard Jesus. But the Christian is someone who understands it, who has let the teaching come deep into their heart and penetrate them and actually change them. Change who they are. Change how they operate. Change how they do life because it's totally changed everything because it's about everything. Jesus says that's the person who is a Christian. That's the person who gets it. It's gone deep into their heart and now their heart is able to produce fruit grown by the spirit of God. And this should make us extremely, extremely humble, right? Because we're not better than anybody else. We're not better than these other groups of people. A Christian is someone who knows that we're not better, right? 
That's the whole point, right? Being a Christian is not about being perfect. It's about being repentant, which should always keep you very low to the ground because you look at other people and you don't have to say, ah, thank, thank goodness that I'm a Christian. Thank goodness I've got the good soil in my heart, right? No, we say, unbelievable that God saved me, that he gave me a new heart. He opened my eyes to understand the teaching of the Bible. Unbelievable that God did that for me. Why for me? It's not because you're better. It's because of his mercy, because of his grace. Do you understand the gospel? Have you heard it? Are you hearing me now and saying, this is, well, this is great. Are you understanding what's happening? Because, you know, if you're married, you, you know, I thought I was a good listener. I thought I was a good hearer until I got married. <laughs> and I realized that everyone who told me I was a good listener was plainly lying to me about my listening skills, right? Just when we were in Texas, my wife and I went out to eat, and we had a very, for me, a very humbling conversation about, you know, how she thought I wasn't really, you know, understanding her. I was like, understanding you, right? And, you know, my first reaction is, who could understand what you're saying, you know? And then Jesus is like, stop it, stop it. You know, some Holy Ghost slappage over there. Just like, don't, don't do that, right? And so I'm hearing everything she's saying. But so rarely do I actually understand what she's saying and take into my heart and actually change me. Jesus is interested in people. He's interested in people who hear who understand, who say he's better, who say he's trustworthy, who say he is joy. So, which, man, which hero are you? Because the seed was just sown for the past 30 minutes. Right? In this circumstance, I'm the sower. And the seed just went out. Right? Jesus is on a boat talking in front of thousands of people. And he doesn't explain the parable to the people, he explains the parable to the disciples. And so the people out there are having to think about. What, is he talking about me? Wait, which, which one am I? What faith do I have? Who is Jesus talking about? Right, Jesus is asking for a response from the people to say, who are you? Are you the skeptic? Are you the deconverted? Are you the one who's seeking pleasure? Are you the Christian? And if you are the Christian, look at what Jesus says at the end here. He says, this is the one who produces a crop, who produces fruit, yielding 160 or 30 times what was sown. Right? Jesus over and over again, Paul over and over again says, you can tell the Christian by their fruit. That's the test. You can, you can actually see it in their life. It's not just praying a prayer. It's not just coming to church. It's actually look at their life, not a perfect life, a life pointing to the one who is perfect, a very broken life, loving the one who is broken for them, a very humble life, knowing that I don't deserve grace any more than anyone else, Right? That is what Jesus is saying, and that will produce fruit in your life. Some, Jesus says, the crop's going to be 100, which is a crazy yield. Some, it's going to be 60. Some, it's going to be 30, right? Let the Spirit worry about the fruit. Let the Spirit worry about the crop. Some, God's going to call to be Billy Graham, okay? There's one Billy Graham. I'm not him. You're not him. You need to be who God's called you to be. And if that's going to be someone who is famous, right, that's great. It's probably going to be someone who no one ever hears about, who's doing your life, raising kids, 
loving grandkids, going to work, trying to find time to read the Bible, trying to find time to love your kids, trying to find time, right, to love your neighbor, right, to share the gospel with someone you work with, just doing the work every single day, going to sleep, spent and tired, and getting up way too early every morning. How can we do this again? Jesus says, keep on going. Keep working in the power of the Spirit, and fruit will come from your life. It will grow if you understand the gospel. If you know the good soil, by that he means your heart has been changed by grace. Right? As I said in a sermon a month or two ago, Christians are people who marvel at the miracle of their conversion. Right? They're not better people. They're broken people who know that Jesus is better. Know that Jesus is better. Okay, finally, I don't want us to just leave here saying, Yes, I'm a Christian. Okay, yes, I checked it off. I believe in grace. I'm good to go. Now I can live my life in the bubble. Yeah, is Jesus about living your life in a bubble? Yes, good job. Yes, he's not about that, right? He is about getting sent out. He doesn't come on the scene and say, okay, guys, let's build a church on this mountain and just wait for everybody to come up to us. No, he says, let's go start churches all over the world. Let's go out into the world and affect the whole world with the gospel, with my love and my compassion and my character and my nature. And so ask if you are a Christian, how do we respond to the skeptic, to the one who suffered, to the one who seeks pleasure outside of other things? Well, I think to the skeptic, right, we just say that Jesus actually is the truth, that he is the way, that he is the life. And we do it humbly, right? Maybe you give out some books. Maybe you give out some resources. Maybe you have them email a pastor or talk to somebody, right? Whatever it is, right? But you keep loving this person because God has put people in your life who fall in these categories and other categories for you to be, right, the Christian in their life. For you to be the person who can shine the light of God's face upon them. For me, I I often deal with people in this category uh, because I went through a skeptical phase in my life. And so I'm very easily relatable to them and their questions and their issues. And God just seems to draw them to me. Maybe you're someone, though, who's in the other category where you've been through a lot of suffering and a lot of pain. And maybe God's going to use that in your life to share with other people, Christian and not, who go through suffering and pain and brokenness. Right, And to those who suffer, to those who have suffered, who wonder if God is there, who wonder if God cares, right, he does. John Stott has this great quote in his book, The Cross of Christ. He says, I could never myself believe in God if it were not for the cross. In the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who was immune to it? I've entered many Buddhist temples in different Asian countries and stood respectfully before the statue of the Buddha, his legs crossed, arms folded, eyes closed, the ghost of a smile playing round his mouth, a remote look on his face, detached from the agonies of the world. But each time, after a while, I've had to turn away. And in imagination, I have turned instead to that lonely, twisted, tortured figure on the cross, nails through his hands and his feet, back lacerated, limbs wrenched, brow bleeding from thorn pricks, mouth dry and intolerably thirsty, plunged into God-forsaken darkness. That is God for me. He laid aside his immunity to pain. He entered our world of flesh and blood, tears and death. He suffered for us. Our sufferings become more manageable in light of his There is still a question mark against human suffering, but over it we boldly stamp another mark, the cross that symbolizes divine suffering. 
The other gods were strong, but thou wast weak. They rode, but thou didst stumble to a throne. But to our wounds, only God's wounds can speak. And not a God has wounds, but thou alone. There is no other religion on, the, on planet earth that teaches that not only did God become a human, but that God suffered and bled as one of us. Right? We don't have the final verdict on your suffering, on your family, friend's suffering. We don't know why. We do have the final verdict on Jesus' suffering. We know it's not because God doesn't care. It's because he does. Be present with people who suffer. Remembering all the time it's not your job to convert anyone. Jesus converts. Love, be patient, be present, be humble, be tolerant, be all of these things a Christian should be. Especially when those people like my friend Adrian, and just tears in her eyes, she got up. And all I could do was just cry with her and say, I don't know why. But I do know why not. It's not because he doesn't care. To the pleasure seeker, we just say, man, come home. Come home, right? In John's sermon last week on the lost sons, to the older brother, to the younger brother, the message of the father is come home. Come home. It's better at home. Jesus is better. He's so much better than anything else that you pursue. And this book is not a bunch of rules meant to just make you miserable. It is a book filled with joy to give you freedom and to give you meaning and purpose in life, right? That's what this book is. And so live your life with that. It's good. And that's what we want to be people, right, who actually live that and not just say, like, oh, I believe in Jesus, right? And then your life just says that you hate your life, right? It doesn't mean you always have to be happy, okay? But there should be this joy that can't be taken away from circumstances because it's built on the character of God. And so to those who seek pleasure in other things, if you're right there listening to me right now, you're hearing me, you're saying, God, I know I, I, know I keep f- going over here. I keep looking at this. I shouldn't look at that. I keep pursuing this. I shouldn't do that. I keep having my life defined by Facebook likes or Instagram likes or how much my house, my home looks like Pinterest. Whatever it is, Jesus is better than any of that. He's better than any of that. Come home. Right, come home. And Jesus is better. And so Jesus says to the disciples, he says, go tell the whole world that I'm better and that I love them and I long to be with them. To the skeptic, the Christian, we say Jesus is the truth. To the sufferer, we say Jesus suffers for you. No other God did that. To the pleasure seeker, we say Jesus is better than anything else. And only by desiring him do any of our other desires have meaning and purpose. So who are you? At the very end of my conversation with Adrian, she asked me this question. She said, Artie, if you could leave me with one thing, just one, th- maybe we never meet again, though I did get her email, so we are corresponding. Okay. But she just said, if you could leave me one thing, just one thing that you want to share with me, what would that be? Say, we never meet again. And I thought, is this the greatest question a pastor could ever get asked like, in my life? Like, this is like textbook. This can't be happening. She's like, just give me one thing you want to share with me. This is after probably a two-hour conversation. 
And I was like, okay, here we go. I'm going to lay it on her. This is, this is like the greatest gospel invitation ever. And so I just shared, there is a God, right? And, and he came in the form of Jesus to suffer for us, to live for us, to take away our sins. He's good and he's caring and he's loving and he's amazing. And he lived this kind of life. And, and the church is, is, is a community of people following him that give meaning and purpose to your life. And so I just keep going on. I'm getting, a, the spirit's like speaking through me, you know, and I'm kind of getting my preacher voice on. It's just getting a little crazy. And I kind of finally ended just saying, you know, pretty much Jesus is better. And I stake my whole life, the life of my girls, my wife, all of that on him and who he is. I believe in him. Right? And she just kind of stares at me. And I'm thinking, Jesus, this would be a great time to save somebody, like right now. Just Jesus do it. So I'm praying the whole time I'm talking, you know, and I'm just, Jesus, would you do it? Would you save? Would you just please right now? This would be unbelievable. And she's looking at me after everything that I've just said. And she looks at me with kind of sadness in her eyes. And she says, RD, oh, how I wish all of what you just said were, were true. Christian, let's live lives that proclaim to people who Jesus is. And let's live lives amongst our family and our friends so that people long to believe in the truth of the gospel. Long to believe that it is true and then show them that it is. Let's pray. Our Father, We thank you and praise you that you are the way and the truth and the life and that through your son, everyone can have life and no one is beyond the reach of your love and your care. Father, wherever we are, however we're hearing the word this morning, I know there are a thousand reactions to it. Father, I just pray that the spirit would just grow in people's hearts, that you would forgive people of their sins, that you would reconcile people, that to the skeptic, they would know you're true. To those who suffer, you would wipe the tears from their eyes. To those who seek pleasure in other things, would you just remind them that your son is better. He's so much better. Thank you for planting good soil in our hearts by grace alone. Nothing we ever did, all of it by grace through what you've done for us. Father, we pray this in your name. And all God's people said, amen.